sermon was going to be on, and uh, so I recited uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And she just sort of looked at me blankly and said, well, there's your sermon right there. There's nothing you need to add to that. And then I said, you know, that is exactly how I feel preparing for this sermon. But um, sorry to disappoint some of you, but nevertheless, I do have a sermon prepared. So if you have a Bible and you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 8. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with us, or if you don't have a Bible to call your own, feel free to uh, find a Bible in the pews in front of you, and you can find today's text on page 599, and the big numbers will correspond with the chapter and the little numbers with the verse. Uh, So read with me from, excuse me, uh, follow along as I read from Isaiah chapter 40 in verses 6 through 8. I'll read and then I will pray. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your word, that your promise endures forever in spite of our inconsistency, in spite of our sin and rebellion. Lord, in spite of all of our weakness, God, we know that we can trust in you and that your promises are fulfilled in Christ. Lord, be with us now in this time. Please open our ears and our hearts to receive your word, and we pray that it would transform us and spur us on to love and good works. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, several of you probably already know this, but over the past year or so, I've kind of developed this nerd-like appreciation for uh, a few works of Russian literature, and my favorite of which is this novel called The Brothers Karamazov. And the character, the main character of this story is a young man, a virtuous man named Alexei, who works as a humble monk in, of a local Eastern Orthodox monastery. Now, his teacher and his spiritual guide is this famous elder Zosima, whose wisdom and mysticism attracts from all over the land people who are hoping to uh, hear some words of wisdom, and if they're lucky, maybe even see some miracle performed by him. But for Alexei, uh, Zosima is not a spectacle or a tourist attraction. He's a father figure. To him, Zosima is a beacon of hope. He's a source of strength and stability, and in the 19th century, when his faith seems to be becoming more and more obsolete, he's a sort of confirmation that what he believes is true. So much of what Alexei holds on to is due to his mentor's life and counsel. Eventually, however, the aging Zosima grows ill and passes away. Now, to those who belong to the Eastern Orthodox Church at this time, uh, they believe that the body is of the most saintly and holy and pious individuals uh, would be preserved for much longer than people who had lived, quote-unquote, normal lives. Their corpses were said to be miraculously kept free of the natural decomposition and decay that would normally beset uh, a normal corpse. Now, this uh, supernatural phenomenon might sound sort of weird to us, uh, but, to, but to people of this time, it was a very important belief. 
This supernatural phenomenon was believed to be a confirmation of the holy person's life and moral purity. And so it was only natural then for Alexei and so many others to expect that this would happen to the mentor, Elder Zosima. But when the body is laid out for many to come and, and view and to pay their respects and maybe even see what happens, just the opposite of what they expected to happen happens. The rancid stench of decomposition sets in quickly and even earlier than would be expected for the corpse of a normal person. And this results in shock from many of the followers of this man, Zosima. But in addition to the shock were the private snickers and jeers of cynical monks who took pleasure in witnessing this scandal as it seemed to indicate that Zosima's life had been fraudulent all along. And some atheists who were in the area were also uh, responded to this event in Glee as it seemed to indicate that the lack of this miracle seemed to indicate that it was religion itself that was fraudulent. For Alexei, though, it was a slap in the face to all that he had devoted his life to. His teacher who had taught him everything he knew, who was a father for him, and who perhaps was the surest living confirmation that what he believed was true, had been publicly disgraced. If this is what happened, then what could he trust in? Was all that he was living for a lie? And just when Alexei most desperately needed a confirmation that what he hoped in was real, that all that he looked forward to would come to pass, just like the grass and the flowers of the field, his mentor's flesh withered. Now, I can't imagine that any of you today have been stunned to find that the body of a loved one decomposed faster than expected or than that you had hoped, but I can imagine that maybe some of you have faced a similar type of disillusionment. Maybe you've had something that you held to be a beacon of hope beaten down. Or maybe you've seen something that you once held deeply to be true, to be proven false. Maybe someone or something you spent so much time trusting in let you down. And maybe the thing that was supposed to protect you ended up being the thing that hurt you the most. Maybe you're a victim of infidelity. Maybe a pastor whom you leaned on for wisdom and counsel had a moral failing. Maybe a church where you had once found comfort and community ended up betraying and hurting you. Maybe you've been neglected by a parent. Maybe there has been some point in your life where you found yourself saying, if I can't trust him, or if that is not true, or if that church is so cruel, or if I'm not who I thought I was, then what hope do I really have? Maybe you're asking this question today. What hope do I really have? And this is not unlike the situation which Israel finds itself here in our passage of Isaiah. As we've seen in recent weeks here at, at our church, the Davidic line, the royal lineage of King David that was promised to deliver God's people from their enemies has been hanging on by a thread. They've just witnessed their neighbors in the northern kingdom overrun by Assyria, and they themselves would have been conquered if God had not answered the, the prayers and petitions of their king Hezekiah. Hezekiah, whose faithfulness and devotion to God at this time was an anomaly for the kings of Israel, had gained the favor of the Lord. And not only this, he was perhaps the symbol of hope for the nation, 
that the promise would be fulfilled and a sign that they would at last have rest from their enemies. But instead of this, the opposite happens. Hezekiah, who who once offered perhaps a glimmer of hope for the Israelites, ends up being the one who ultimately causes the nation's downfall. In a moment of pride and boastfulness, he shows off all his riches and all that is in his house to Babylonian messengers. And as a result, the Lord's judgment is announced on the nation. See see Isaiah 39, 5-7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah and the favor that he had gained from the Lord seemed to be the last thing that kept a rebellious Israel's hopes alive. But in a moment, all of that vanished, such that the one question Israel had left to ask itself was this one. What hope do we have now? And this is the question that Isaiah 40 ultimately seeks to answer. And the answer is that the fulfillment of God's promise is not dependent on any work of man, but completely on the work of God. Specifically in our text today, we see that God's promise endures in spite of man's shortcomings and failures. We see contrast between the inconsistency, the weakness, and mortality of human beings and the consistency, sovereignty, and eternal trustworthiness of God. And it is specifically in this enduring and unchanging nature of God that we find our hope. And so we'll look at Isaiah 46 through 8 today in, in, uh, in three points. And point one is a word of lament, and that will be in verse 6. Point two is a word of judgment, and that's in verse 7. And point three is a word of hope in verse 8. That's a word of lament, a word of, a word of judgment, and a word of hope. Look with me firstly at a word of lament. Let's see verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. For the second time here in Isaiah 40, we are introduced to a certain voice here in verse 6, a voice that is something other than Isaiah's. Now, sometimes it may be easy for us to take for granted that the prophets acted as a mouthpiece for the Lord and that, we're, that they spoke with the authority of the Holy Spirit. And so here in this verse, we are reminded of who the true voice behind Isaiah is. We are reminded of the prophet's calling and commissioning all the way back in chapter 6. And we are reminding that the one who has been announcing judgment and promising restoration throughout this book has been none other than God himself. As we read recently in 2 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 21, we see that, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this detail is more than just a subtle reminder of who gives Isaiah's words authority. It serves us to get to pay attention. These words are stressed to remind us of who have ears to hear of the divine authority behind the message. 
Now, you may be thinking that this is a small and insignificant detail. It may seem superfluous that God is singled out as speaking through the mouth of Isaiah. But look what happens when we look at the surrounding context. Immediately after the Lord announces that Babylon will overtake Jerusalem in Isaiah 39, Isaiah 40 begins with the words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So this passage is ultimately about God comforting his people and reaffirming his promises to them. And so the voice, God's voice, immediately after the announcement of their discipline, tells us that God has not abandoned his people, but that he remains faithful. It is reminiscent of Genesis 3, where as soon as Adam disobeys God, it is not God who hides from Adam, while Adam seeks after God, but vice versa. It is God who says to the man, where are you? Just the simple act of God speaking to us is a reminder that in spite of the rebellion of his people, his promise is is still intact because it endures forever. Church, God has spoken to us, and we have confirmation of his promise in his word, a promise that is ultimately fulfilled in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. What are you doing to remind yourself of this promise? Last Sunday, one of our members, Scott Beagle, shared about his progress in memorizing Scripture, and I would commend this endeavor to you as well. If, you are, uh, if you're new to memorization, it might seem like a daunting task, uh, but I would encourage you to start small with short, recognizable verses, and then uh, work your way up to longer and larger passages. You'll be surprised at not only how much you can accomplish, but actually how much your prayer life can be helped by this as you find yourself praying God's words back to him. Friends, it is a blessing that our God is one who speaks. The word from this voice, however comforting it ultimately may be, begins with the word of lamentation. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. By likening mankind to grass, this statement laments mankind's transiency, inconsistency, and overall weakness. Like the grass, man is here one day and is gone the next. And by likening his beauty to the flower of the field, this statement laments the fact that man's goodness is even more fleeting and few and far between. When I was in high school, I went on a guy's trip with my dad, my grandfather, and my brother to southern Arizona, uh, where we would do some hiking and some other outdoorsy activities. Uh, Now, the plan for this trip was to try to schedule the trip around uh, the peak season for for the blossoming of the wildflowers and cactus blossoms that the desert would would present. Uh, The problem with this is that there is only a small window of a couple of weeks where you can see these flowers when they're at their full potential. If you go too soon, you'll miss it all. But if you go too late, the flowers will have already withered. And so this is along the lines of what this statement is saying. Man's goodness is temporary, and it's fleeting, and is as trustworthy and enduring as a flower that will, that will wilt almost as soon as it blooms. And anyone who has just read Isaiah 39 on Hezekiah's folly will know exactly how accurate this metaphor is. For anyone who may have thought that Hezekiah might be the one to turn everything around for the nation, 
his folly with the Babylonian messengers proves that he is far from sufficient for the task. The, prov- the promise given to Israel cannot be carried out by man or by God alone. All humanity is like grass, and all its goodness is like the flowers of the field. And I imagine everyone in here has likely found this out one way or another, and many of us, if we're honest, uh, have probably found this out the hard way. Maybe we've seen someone who has influenced us from afar, maybe a pastor or theologian or politician, prove to be double, living a double life and go back on what they had said. Perhaps more painfully, we've been let down by someone close to us. Maybe a pastor who has influenced our spiritual life, had a secret and hidden life revealed. Maybe it's a spouse or a parent or a sibling who refuses to speak with us anymore. Or maybe many of you feel that the metaphor of the grass and the flowers is most directly applicable to yourself, whether because of your weakness or some enduring sin pattern that so easily entangles. Maybe these realizations have caused you to question God's goodness and whether his promise really is true. But friends, take comfort from this passage of Isaiah. If there's any point at this story where Israel is to lose hope, it's now. But just when it seems like everything is lost, God speaks. And his voice doesn't end with the word of lament over the frailty of humanity because his word is one that endures forever. And that brings us to point two, a word of judgment. Look with me at verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Now verse 7 gives us a glimpse into what mankind looks like against the backdrop of his creator. The greatest that humanity has to offer, its greatest goods and its most noble deeds, its most powerful works are destroyed with nothing but a breath from the Lord. Compared to the Lord's holiness, Mankind is nothing but grass. Now, on the one hand, we can apply this statement to humanity's glory and achievement. Within Scripture, we might recall Nebuchadnezzar, who, when he was boastfully admiring his kingdom and all that he had built, hardly had time to finish the thought before God reduced him to insanity. Or we might think of the Egyptians and their many chariots being reduced to rubble under the Red Sea. And if we turn over just a few pages in the book of Isaiah, In chapters 13 through 23, we read prophecy after prophecy announcing judgments upon the nations. One nation and leader rise up, and another comes to take their place. How many Alexanders, Caesars, Napoleons have risen and gained the notoriety and the awe and wonder of the world, but then just perished with a little more than a flicker? And this not only applies to nations and rulers, but also to people just like us. Now, we may never achieve the glories of political power like these great rulers. We may never even have the opportunity to make it out of the middle class. But this will never keep us from trying to build up whatever honor or prestige we can for ourselves. Now, I won't belabor this point because we've been studying Ecclesiastes, so I encourage you to go to our website and find more on this topic by listening to some of the available sermons there. But let me just leave you with a couple of questions. Is there something that you are trying to gain? And if so, why? Is it a new promotion? A new job altogether? 
a relationship? Is it a certain friend group or social setting? Maybe you're trying to join some sort of inner circle where all the important decisions are made or where some of the privileged insider information is. Or maybe what you're after is knowledge, maybe even good knowledge. Something as good as, say, theology. And as good as many of these things are in and of themselves, whatever it is that you gain here in this life is nothing in the presence of God. It is vain and it is fleeting, just as James 1, 9 through 11 tells us. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Whatever it is that you are after is temporary and fleeting. It will fade away. It is the word of God that is forever. So take hold of him instead. Now this verse is not only refer to the glory of man, but also to man's morality in the presence of God. And we have already looked at Hezekiah's shortcomings, but this same truth applies to all of humanity, even some of the greatest heroes that we find in the Bible. Abraham, Moses, David, and all the rest are shown to be un- incapable of overcoming sin on their own. One of the universal truths that every m- person must face is that all have sinned, and that all falls short of the glory of God. Even the best works that we have done wither like the flowers and fall short in the presence of the perfect and matchless holiness of God because even our best works are lacking and fall short. But what is the consequence of this? What is the result of man's sin and moral inability to reach God's glory? I think verse 7 gives us a hint. One commentator says that the Lord's breath that withers the grass and the flowers is a factor of divine judgment and a visitation of death. So friends, let, us, let this be a reminder to us that all must one day give an account before the judgment seat of Christ, where he will judge each one according to what he has done. Friends, never forget this, that you will give an answer for what you have done. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you may be wondering how you will ever stand before God if even the greatest and most moral things that you have done wither like the flowers in the presence of God. The truth is is that your works are not enough to gain favor with the Lord. You need someone else's work. You need the work of Jesus Christ, God the Son himself, who took on this weak and frail and human flesh, who lived the life that we could not live and bore the penalty of sin on our behalf so that all who repent and turn to him in faith might have everlasting life. If you're here today and you have not put your faith in Christ today, don't wait any longer. Come to him today. Because the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Now, I know that I mentioned earlier that this passage is supposed to bring hope to God's people, uh, but so far it seems to only be mentioning lamentation and judgment. So you might be thinking that a portion of Scripture that begins with the words comfort, comfort my people, 
is strangely not very comforting. But if we stay here in verse 7, I want to first notice that in the Hebrew text, this breath of the Lord is actually a reference to the Spirit of the Lord. Now, normally when we see this this kind of language with a reference to the Spirit, often phrased as the breath or the winds of the Lord, it is in reference, especially in the Old Testament, to His creating and His renewing work. So, for instance, see Psalm 104, verse 30. When you send forth your Spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. This language goes back to the creation account in Genesis 1-2 when we see the Spirit of God hovering over the watery depths. And the same principle comes into view in Genesis 8-1 after the flood when God makes a wind blow over the earth and makes the water subside by it, repeating this act of creation. We see it in the creation of man when God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And again later in Ezekiel 37, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Perhaps most famously, Jesus says in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The same agent that was at work in the creation of the world is at work in its recreation. And the same agent that was at work in its recreation is at work in the recreation of all those who put their faith and trust in Christ as He breathes new life into us. But if the Spirit of the Lord is actually referred to, or is usually referred to as an agent of creation, why is this prophecy associating, perhaps even replacing, renewal and creation with judgment? Is there some sort of contradiction here? On this verse, Calvin says that there's no contradiction and that there is no absurdity in saying that all things are renewed by the power of the Spirit. And again, that what formerly appeared to be something is reduced to nothing. For we are all nothing apart from God. And in order that we may begin to be something in Him, we must first be convinced and made thoroughly to know that we are vanity. Therefore does the Lord breathe upon us, that we may know that of ourselves we are nothing. The point that we are to take from this is that if we are to be born again, if we are to be a new creation, if we are to have new life breathed into us, the old must be put to death. If we are to be raised with Christ, we must first be crucified with Christ by repentance and faith. And when this happens, it is the old self that has withered. It is our new self that has put on Christ. One of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia is in the voyage of the Dawn Treader in a situation involving Eustace, who's the annoying and bratty cousin of the Pevensey children. Now, chances are you've heard this illustration before, and you may know exactly where I'm going with this, uh, but I'm going to share it anyway. Uh, but to make a long story short, Eustace finds himself turned into a dragon because of his greed. And so after many failed attempts to turn himself back into a boy, he has an encounter with Aslan, the great lion and the true king of Narnia, who always manages to show up at just the right time. Knowing that Eustace has failed to transform himself back into a human on his own, Aslan says to him, you will have to let me do it. And so with his mighty claws, Aslan the lion begins to tear right at the boy's dragging skin, ripping it off piece 
by piece by piece. Recounting the experience, Eustace says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, peeled the beastly stuff right off, he did. This is the humiliation of repentance, the painfulness of having our sin put to death, of being crucified with Christ. But nothing compares to the joy of being made new. And so once Eustace is turned back into a boy, Aslan puts a brand new set of clothes in him. And it is just the same way when we turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus. When we do this, we are clothed with the perfect and spotless righteousness of Christ. So come to him today and be clothed with something that will never wither and never fade. And that leaves us with point three, a word of hope. Let's look at verse eight. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I think one of the most glorious words in the Bible is the word but. It seems like so many of the places where you find it, you find some of the most comforting truths. But God shows his love for us in this. But God, who is rich in mercy, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's the word that connects uh, the contrast between the inconsistency, the unreliability, and the mortality of man and the internal, unchanging faithfulness of God. In this text, Israel is at the precipice of exile. Their leaders and their people are guilty of just about every kind of wickedness, idolatry, injustice, greed, pride, and lawlessness that you can think of. They have abandoned the God who brought them out of slavery. They have rebelled against Him. The promise that through them, all the nations of the world would be blessed. The promise that through them, the curse of sin would be reversed. The promise that through them, the head of the serpent would be crushed could not be realized by them because they were only flesh. But in spite of his people's unfaithfulness, God's word endures forever. His promise still stands. When David had his moral failure, God's word still stood. When Solomon disobeyed the Lord, God's word still stood. And when Hezekiah's folly sentenced Israel to exile, God's word still stood. And we fast forward to the New Testament, we learn that this word became flesh. We learn that God's promise remains forever because its fulfillment is not dependent on man's faithfulness, but on God's. We learn that it was God himself in the person of Jesus Christ who fulfilled this promise by becoming a man just like us and by offering the perfect and sinless sacrifice that we deserved. And it was there on the cross where he paid the penalty for sin under God's wrath so that anyone who believes in him might not perish like the grass or like the flowers of the field, but have eternal life dressed in the righteousness of Christ. I've noticed here around town, and maybe you have as well, some signs in people's yards that read, you are enough. I don't want to say, first of all, that I'm very grateful for the well-intentioned kindness of, uh, of our neighbors. and encourages me that there are people in our community who are striving to bring hope to strangers who 
may be struggling. And I also fully believe that God can certainly use things like this to bring encouragement to people. And I'd be happy to know that if there is any one of us who has perhaps benefited from things like this. But if I may, I'd like to add that the phrase, you are enough, doesn't quite tell the whole story. In fact, the passage we are studying today seems to say something a little bit different. It seems to say that on our own, we are nothing but grass that withers and passes away as if it's nothing. The reality is that this is the truth for anyone who is not in Christ. But for those who are in Christ, if you have repented and put your faith in Him, if you have had the Spirit breathe new life into you, if you have had your heart of stone replaced with the heart of flesh, if you are now clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness, you are not simply enough. You are among those who are called more than conquerors. So if you're here today and you haven't accepted Christ, let me invite you to turn to him and put your faith in him today. If you're unsure of how to do this, what it means to be a Christian, feel free to speak with me or any of our elders or any of our members because we'd love to speak with you. We'd love to share Christ and how the promise is fulfilled in him with you. Also, if you don't have a Bible to call your own, please feel free to take one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you. We would love to have a shortage of Bibles. That is a very good problem to have. If you're here and you are a Christian, chances are that even though you have put your faith in Christ, you still feel much more like the withering grass than one who is more than a conqueror. Maybe you feel weak. Maybe you're suffering through the loss of a loved one. Maybe you feel you're unable to provide the love and provision your loved ones are depending on. Or maybe you just find yourself going back to the same old sins. Or maybe it isn't necessarily what you think to be true about yourself. Perhaps you've seen the frailty of human flesh and the way others have treated you. Maybe it's been a spouse abusing or abandoning you. Maybe you've seen a church say and teach one thing, but then do the complete opposite, hurting you and others along the way. If this is you this morning, maybe you're asking yourself if this is what new life in Christ is really supposed to look like. Perhaps you find yourself struggling to believe that God's promises really are true. If this is you this morning, take heart. Because the fulfillment of God's promise, just as we saw with Israel and Hezekiah, is not dependent on your faithfulness or your strength or the actions of those who proclaim to be his followers. The fulfillment of this promise rests wholly on the shoulders of Christ, apart from anything we might contribute. We are reminded this morning that this word stands forever. So I encourage you, I urge you to seek this truth in his word. Find his promises there. Commit it to memory. Hide it in your heart so that God's promise is always on your mind. This word is the revelation of God's message. It is the Lord himself speaking to you personally. In addition to reading God's word on your own, come hear God's word taught. If you're uh, you're here and you're not a member of our church, we invite you to come be a part of this community that is built upon the promises of God. We're a sinful and we're a messed up group of people just like everyone else is. I've sinned against people here, and they've sinned against me. But we've forgiven, we've confessed each other. And this is a community that encourages and builds one another up 
on the promises of God's Word. If you're here and you're already a member, think about how you might help us advance the ministry of our Word. Members of Christ Church Westchester, the preaching of God's Word is a church-wide endeavor. Some will preach from the pulpit, and others might have to clean up vomit off the back seat of their pastor's car after dropping him off so that he isn't late to the place he's supposed to be preaching. That sounds like an oddly specific story. It's a true one, and I encourage you to ask Mike if you want to hear more details. Whether you're in the nursery or in children's ministry, whether you're a door greeter, if you're helping Chris with security, if you're helping Marissa with hospitality, you are contributing to the ministry of God's Word in a crucial way. If you're here and if you're just sitting and listening, help us contribute to the ministry of God's Word by being an active listener. Let the Word transform you. Let it spur you on to love and good works. Friends, let's be a community that is ever in service of God's Word. Friends, we will have moments when our flesh and our heart fail. But God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. So let us be a people that is marked by a commitment to this word that stands forever. Even when we grow weary, even when we stumble, even when our flesh proves to be brittle and weak, let us take heart that God's eternal promises are not dependent upon us, but on the finished work of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. God, we praise you that the fulfillment of your promise is not dependent upon us, because if it were, God, there is no way that it could be brought to completion. Lord, we pray that each and every day that we would be meditating on your word, that we would be reminded of this eternal word, of this promise that is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. promise of your word and the power strong to say that will never pass away I will stand on every promise of your word covenant is sure and secure I can stand on every promise from your word. I stumble and I sin, condemnation pressing in. I will stand on every promise of your word. You are faithful to forgive that in freedom I might live. So I stand on every promise of your word. To innocence restore, you remember sins no more. So 
all stand on every promise of your word. When I'm Listen for your voice, and I'll stand on every promise of your word. Through this dark and troubled land, you will guide me with your hand. As I stand on every promise of your word, and you promise to complete every work begun in me so i'll stand on every promise of your love that lifts me from despair love that casts out every fear as i stand on every promise of your not forsaken, not alone, for the Comforter has come. And I stand on every promise of your word. Sufficient grace for me, grace who all who would believe. We will stand on every promise of your word. Grace sufficient, grace for me, grace for all who will believe. We will stand on every promise of your word.